please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We are continuing our series of sermons through Luke's gospel, and we have arrived at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. So let me read those to you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, um, I just thank you that you have provided for us this window into your character, um, into your nature, and that we can understand who you are in such a crystal clear way so that we can be accurate representatives of you and model who you are to the world, Lord. And Lord, as I uh, preach this, this evening, I just pray that we would be transformed through the words of this text, that we would take to heart um, who you reveal yourself to be so that we can live out those same characteristics ourselves, Lord. I pray that we would learn to be gentle on occasions that you would be gentle and stern on occasions that you would be stern and that we wouldn't shrink back because of pride or fear from either of those things, Lord. Um, yeah, Lord, help us to be um, changed by the power of your Holy Spirit as we examine this text of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, well, good evening again. My name is Raymond. Um, most of you know. Uh, I have uh, served as a community group leader here for many years with David Shashinkin. It's been my honor to do that. And I also uh, correspond with our missionaries that we partner with in the proclamation of the gospel overseas. And uh, just I'm able to obviously bring you guys updates on what they're doing and, and how God's moving and working through them and in their lives. And it's always an honor to uh, stand before you and proclaim the word of God. And thank you, Leo, for asking me to do this. And it's just a very fascinating text to study. So I hope you're blessed by it as much as I have been in examining this. But um, as we read this passage, at least the initial uh, section of it, uh, for me, it calls to mind what was said about the Savior of the world hundreds of years before he entered onto the stage of world history. And I'm referring to the words uh, found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, 
um, that highlight the dishonor with which the Savior of the world would be treated. Um, Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Uh, now, in Hebrew thought, sometimes the word uh, despised can carry the connotation actually of not hostility, but neglect or even indifference, like not caring at all. Um, often in the Old Testament, when God would criticize his people for, quote unquote, despising his commands, he was essentially accusing them of neglecting his commands or just being indifferent to his commandments. So I think when Isaiah says that the Savior will be despised, uh, he might simply be saying that the Savior would be neglected, uh, disregarded, or undervalued by some people in addition to the open hostility that he faced by others. As we see throughout the life of Jesus and in this particular passage, um, sometimes that neglect comes in the form of overt rejection, but in other times it comes in the form of false loyalty. Uh, we see the overt rejection, of course, right off the bat, um, carried out in Luke 9 by the Samaritans that seems to be based more on indifference than open hostility. Um, not hostility over uh, who he claimed to be his Messiah or even his teachings, but rather indifference to those things. Um, look again at verses 51 uh, through 56. And it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we'll actually we'll read to, right now we'll read just to uh, 53. So, Says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans uh, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, if you study this passage, you would know that from an ignorant human perspective, like just on the complete surface of things, it's actually pretty understandable uh, why the Samaritans would reject Jesus in this instance. Uh, that's because Jesus meant to pass through this village of the Samaritans on his way uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast or the festival of Tabernacles, which of course is the Jewish holiday commemorating uh, God's faithfulness to the Jews during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they lived in tents after the exodus from Egypt. Uh, the Samaritans perceived this journey as yet another instance uh, of disrespect coming from a Jewish rabbi and his entourage. Uh, that's because the Samaritans were seen as second-class citizens by many Jews. Uh, in fact, Jews used the word Samaritan as an insult often. Uh, we see in the Gospel of John chapter 8, the religious leaders ridiculed Jesus by saying this, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. That was their insult of Jesus. The Samaritans were ethnically mixed, and they deviated from the Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, uh, when it came to worship, and were even tolerant of pagan religious beliefs and practices. Uh, these are the core reasons that the Jews despised the Samaritans. 
but the hostility between the two groups uh, made it quite difficult for many Jews seeking to make uh, the pilgrimage to the sacred land of Jerusalem for Jewish uh, religious holidays on the calendar. Um, for example, if you're from Nazareth, where, where Jesus was from, the easiest way to get to Jerusalem was to go through the territory of Samaria. Uh, but the Samaritans resented the fact that their homeland was treated uh, as nothing more than a thoroughfare. Um, and let me give you an analogy that I hope will clarify to you why the Samaritans were so offended by this. Um, in the United States, the major hubs of academia and of entertainment and media are mainly located on the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, the people who live there often view themselves as the arbiters of intellectual and cultural progress. And so those in the middle, for example, in the Gulf states and in the Rocky Mountain states and um, the Midwest, uh, are often portrayed in a contemptuous way, as we know, by the news media and by movies and television programs. Uh, those in the middle are often seen as essentially deplorable, and the land that they occupy is dismissively referred to as flyover country. This is a term that's actually used by the news media. Um, and this flyover country is an unsavory place to be passed over or passed by as quickly as possible on your way from point A to point B. So this is the way that the Samaritans felt regarded, rightfully, uh, and, the way, and this is why they didn't want Jesus uh, passing through their villages on the way to Jerusalem. Um, hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews was so intense that, according to the Roman Jewish uh, historian Josephus, who lived in the first century, that Jews were often killed when they tried to make passage through the territory of the Samaritans on their way to Jerusalem. This would explain uh, why we see in verse 52, quote, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Um, he didn't want to risk dying before the time appointed for him by God the Father. But the interesting thing is these Samaritans uh, didn't seem to realize that Jesus himself was not in the category of people who disdained the Samaritans. Uh, Jesus' love for them was demonstrated throughout the Gospels. For instance, in John chapter 4, we see that Jesus stayed in a village of the Samaritans for two days, uh, preaching the Gospel after he met the woman at the well, famously. And many Samaritan villagers acquired saving faith through that time. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll see in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tell the story of uh, the Good Samaritan in which someone from this maligned people group is presented as the hero of the story. And in Luke 17, we're going to see Jesus heal ten lepers, one of whom was a Samaritan. So Jesus made no distinction in his willingness to teach or to heal or to offer salvation uh, to the Samaritans during his earthly ministry, yet we see the Samaritans rejecting him. Uh, but they weren't really rejecting him as an individual. Uh, it's not that they were hostile towards, again, his claims of messiahship or his teaching necessarily. 
In this instance, it's more that they were indifferent to anything about him as an individual. They disregarded his individuality or his identity um, because of uh, his demographic group, essentially. And I think there's a, a parallel uh, to modern evangelistic challenges in this story. Uh, in this story, we see uh, people rejecting God because of a grievance they have against God's old covenant people, the Jews. Uh, and in modern times, people often reject Jesus using the excuse that God's new covenant people, the church, um, have mistreated them. Um, and actually, you know, come across this, this issue occasionally uh, in my own interactions with people. Um, a few years ago, I shared the gospel with um, a homosexual man who, in the years since, has actually become a friend of mine. But at the time, he said that he could not become a Christian because of the way that the church has so often mistreated him. And my response to him was, if the church or if Christians have said to you that in order to become a Christian, you have to repent of homosexual sin, that's not abuse. That's actually love. But if the church has actually mistreated you um, because you're a homosexual, then I'm sorry about that. Is my response to him. Um, however, what I also said to him was, you shouldn't reject the love and the redemption and the destiny that God offers his redeemed people because some of God's people have mistreated you. That would be foolish. And, um, well, I'm pretty sure that there are no Christ rejectors here this evening, just blatant Christ rejectors. Uh, but if you're watching or listening online and you have rejected Christ um, because you have legitimately been mistreated by the church, I would say I'm sorry about that. And the church is meant to be a light of the world, which is a metaphoric way of saying we are commanded to live exemplary lives of virtue. Uh, we are to live in a manner that is above reproach. Uh, we are to live lives that are characterized by love, which includes love of people who hate us. Um, and these, of course, characteristics were embodied by Jesus Christ himself. Uh, but the fact that the church at times has misrepresented Jesus does not exempt anyone from his or her obligation to respond to what they personally know to be true about Jesus himself. So I would say if you're one of those who would say, I like Christ, but I don't like Christians very much. Then I would say to that person, uh, follow Christ, and then join us and show us how to be a real disciple if you think we're so messed up, which we're all messed up in some way or another. And understand this, that no one will be condemned because they refuse fellowship with Christians. But Jesus will return in the flesh and preside over a day of judgment in which everyone will be damned who refuses fellowship with the Son of God. But having said that, um, we as Christians in this time, in this era, are not called to execute God's judgment on the world. Uh, we are called to represent God's forgiveness and his mercy to the world. Um, even when Jesus is dishonored and even when we as his worshipers are mistreated, uh, we are to show love to those who hate us and who hate and reject our Savior. And that's what Jesus' companions had to learn. Uh, look at verses 54 through 56. And those read, 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, uh, that is the fact that Jesus was not welcomed by the Samaritans, uh, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So essentially, uh, James and John had become homicidal in this passage. Uh, that's how furious they were that the, the Samaritans refused to help Jesus. Um, in their anger, they were invoking Genesis 19 when God rained down sulfur and fire to destroy the depraved cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were invoking Exodus 9 when God sent thunder and hail and fire that killed people and livestock, uh, which was one of God's judgments against the Egyptians for their oppressive enslavement of the Israelites. But mainly, it seems that they had in mind an event that took place in the middle of the 8th century B.C. that is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Uh, this is when Ahaziah, the evil king of Israel, sent messengers to confront God's prophet Elijah. And so let me read that passage to you. It says, When the king... Sorry, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now returning to today's text, uh, some manuscripts of Luke's gospel have uh, chapter 9, verse 54, reading this way. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, again, that the Samaritan village was not receiving Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? And it's easy to understand, of course, why these uh, disciples would be personally offended. It's also understandable that they would be outraged at Jesus' treatment. After all, uh, here we have an instance of the creatures uh, rejecting the Creator and denying Him passage through the very land that He Himself spoke into existence. But as we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus' response is patience and forgiveness towards those who despise Him. And I think part of the reason why Jesus chose to show such compassion here uh, is that he knew that in this case, the Samaritans' unwelcoming response wasn't uh, directly a reaction against him. It was a reaction against the previous instances of hurt that they had experienced from the people of God. And I really think uh, that this is something that Maybe we don't talk about enough in conservative evangelical churches. We rightly 
discuss the fact that as God's representatives, we will face hostility to those or from those who were openly uh, rebel, rebelling against God. But sometimes we don't talk about the fact that uh, some people are not self-conscious rebels against God. Quite frankly, some people hate us because they think we hate them. Sometimes they believe uh, that because they've been mistreated by some Christians. But other times, again, they, they believe this because of inaccurate portrayals that they have seen in the news media or movies that misrepresent who we are as Christians. Um, but not to pick on this issue, but again, there are, there are homosexuals who hate us because they think we hate them. And there are women who have had abortions who hate us because they think we hate them. And so when the world is hostile towards us, what an opportunity to react with love and with compassion and with mercy. And what an opportunity to absolutely shock them with the compassion that we show. That is the way we are called to respond to those who um, hate us. But moving along, it's interesting to see in this passage that Jesus is more gentle towards these folks who openly reject him than he is toward those who seemingly embraced him. And look at uh, verses 57 through 62 again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those of, at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Um, on the surface of things, uh, Jesus' response to these potential disciples is quite strange. Uh, here we see people expressing a willingness in some cases, and in other cases, even a strong desire to be with Jesus and to learn from Jesus. Uh, why is he saying things that add emotional uh, and psychological weight and barriers between him and those who would follow him? Um, in my study of this passage, you know, I came across uh, some commentaries that provide explanations as to why Jesus' comments to these uh, willing followers uh, his response was quite reasonable and quite uh, logical, and it's not as radical as it might seem. But um, I'm not actually a fan of those interpretations because he, maybe they are true, but in fact we see throughout the Gospels Jesus saying radical-sounding things uh, to potential disciples. Um, in fact, I would say more accurately the answer to why he responded this way is found in John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2, and that's verses 23 to 25. And that passage reads, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, uh, Jesus knew uh, who fickle followers were and who true followers and true believers were. Um, He wasn't impressed with outward expressions of loyalty. He had discernment and knew many people ostensibly uh, who were ostensibly willing to follow him uh, were only interested in that because they were attracted to the things that he was capable of doing for them to fulfill uh, their selfish desires, not because they wanted to worship him, as uh, Alex pointed out a few weeks ago in his sermon. Uh, Not only was Jesus able to recognize fickle followers because he had discernment, but because he had personal experiences to back that up. Um, Remember back in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus taught in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Early in that passage, it says, quote, all spoke well of him, unquote. That's in verse 22. And then very, very quickly after that, verse 29, the passage ends with, quote, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Uh, So he went from respected to reviled in eight short verses. In Luke uh, 18.28, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left our homes and followed you uh, when he was seeking assurances uh, from Jesus that the sacrifice that he had made and the other apostles had made wasn't all for nothing. Um, But when he said, We have left our homes and followed you, one of those people included in the we is Judas Iscariot. And you would think that uh, leaving all one's earthly possessions is a pretty clear sign of loyalty. Uh, But of course, in Luke uh, 22, we will see that Judas turned uh, Jesus over to his enemies. He was the agent through which Jesus' enemies captured and killed him. Later, we're going to see that the same crowds in Jerusalem who celebrated Jesus when he arrived in Luke 19... Um, includes some of the same people who will shout crucify him in Luke 23. So again, Jesus wasn't impressed when people outwardly expressed interest in following him. He knew the marks of true worship and true repentance. So in Luke 9, we see Jesus making hard-to-accept demands in order to siphon off self-serving followers. Unlike Jesus, um, we as preachers can't know uh, for certain whether someone is a sincere believer in Jesus. But but we can follow Jesus' example in our preaching. Um, In evangelical churches, um, we do ourselves a disservice when we don't preach unpopular or even radical-sounding truths. This kind of preaching is the means through which God removes imposter Christians from his churches, as we see in Luke 9. Um, And I feel like I I have occasion to mention this often, or every so often when I preach, Uh, but the reality is most of the men who have preached here at Shorebreak at times have had people uh, leave the church over things we've said and things we preached because they could not tolerate our commitment to biblical truth. 
and as nice and as mild-mannered of a guy as I am, you know, I've had people leave the church over things that I've said and preached. Um, that's actually heartbreaking, but it's ultimately a good thing. Um, if we water down our sermons uh, to appease false or immature Christians, we as preachers would be setting ourselves up as obstacles rather than partners in the sanctifying work that God wants to do in his church. And we would be creating an environment that would attract false Christians, which would bring moral chaos to our fellowship. Um, well, as I said earlier, I'm pretty sure that there are no Christ rejectors in our midst this evening, but there might be fake Christians. Um, I certainly, in my heart, don't really believe that we have fake Christians in our fellowship this morning or this evening, uh, but unfortunately, I'm not omniscient. Uh, so it would be irresponsible of me to not mention the consequences of having a non-committal relationship with Jesus. Um, if you have a worldview that's contrary to Jesus's, or if you have a lifestyle that's contrary to Jesus's, or if you have ambitions that are contrary to Jesus's, you must examine yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith, as we all must do. The good news is that Jesus offers the same grace, the same salvation and forgiveness, both to uh, true Christ rejectors and fake Christians, those in that category who uh, repent of those sinful dispositions. There is nothing mysterious or complicated about it. It is through repentance and faith in Jesus that everyone receives the gift of true fellowship with him. Let's pray. Lord, again, I just thank you for this demonstration of your character in this passage, both your mercy and your sternness. And I just pray, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of you and those characteristics. Um, that we would embody those characteristics ourselves, that we would be stern when you are stern, but also to not let pride get in the way of us being merciful where you are merciful. When we have been personally offended, rejected, hated, we should look to you and the way you treated those who treated you in such a manner. And I pray that through that, um, people would be won over, that the gospel would be adorned by our conduct towards those haters. Lord, and that uh, those who hate you and who hate us would be drawn to your character and to your glory, the glory of the gospel, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that as we uh, leave this evening, we would just meditate on this passage and maybe even go home and read it once again to see uh, just how intentional you are and how specific you are in your interactions with different people. You knew and you could discern what people needed, whether it was, again, softness and a mercy or a stern word. And I just pray that in our interactions with non-believers, you would help us to pray and to remind us to pray and remind us to seek your wisdom and your discernment so that we would know what does this individual need that we're interacting with. Um, 
and so that we can be a, a means through which they come to understand your gospel and enter into saving relationship uh, with you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.